Paul states here, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And Father, we just ask as we carry on now in our worship of you, that you would help us by your spirit, Lord, to just have hearts that are just good, fertile soil, that you can plant the good seed of your word down inside of us, Lord, that it would bear good fruit for the kingdom of God and for our growth in our relationships with you. Lord, we just pray that by your spirit now you would speak through what you have spoken in the word of God already. Bless this time, Lord, we ask expectantly in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think you can tell when you love someone because you start to truly care about what matters to them. Any guy understands that reality. You watch any man begin to fall in love, and it's amazing the things that all of a sudden he starts to participate in and take consideration of. And the reason behind that is when you fall in love with someone, you truly start to care about what matters to them. And I think you can also tell when you have respect for someone because you also become concerned about what matters to them. When you truly respect a person or an individual, you start to think about and become concerned about what matters to them. Well, look, in a spiritual sense, if we truly love God, we're going to care about what matters to him. And if we genuinely do respect and reverence God, we're going to care about what matters to him. And so therefore, I think it goes without saying, we should ask the question, what matters to God? What does matter to him? And we should become, therefore, concerned about those things that matter to him, certainly foremost. And we should be even occupied in those very things. So as we ask that question of ourselves, what things matter to God? Certainly it's not exhaustive, but very clearly in our verses this morning, in our passage, we get insight to some of the things that clearly matter to God. Very evident, very clear, it answers that question. Now, again, remember the backdrop as we're looking at these things together. We know there's a purposeful reason that the Holy Spirit directed Paul to write this particular letter in the New Testament, 1 Timothy. We saw that as we began our study, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul specifically stated that he was writing this letter in the absence of being there with them at the church of Ephesus, that they might know how to conduct themselves in the house of God. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I am specifically writing this letter and the things contained within it. The content is to help the local church know how to function. 
according to being God's family. Again, God's the father, and so therefore with his authority, the household should operate the way God wants it to and how his children are intended to operate and function, not according to their own ideas or their own preferences or what culture's saying. And again, important to understand, uh, no pastor, uh, no uh, group of church leaders or eldership has the right to operate the church the way that they prefer. We are bound to what the word of God says, and God's word says there is a particular way that the house of God is to function. There's an order. There's certain things that we should be doing that we shouldn't be doing, certain things that we are occupied in, other things that we shouldn't be allowing. And the book of 1 Timothy gives to us great understanding regarding God's instruction, how the church is to operate according to God's design. As we come into chapter 2, we'll see as we go through this chapter, it mainly addresses a great deal of how the church is to conduct its affairs in its public gatherings. That is, when we come together, when we assemble, chapter 2 puts great emphasis upon this is how you are to operate when you assemble together when you come together collectively in gathering times. And so therefore, you notice chapter 2, verse 1, he starts this chapter with that word, and this is always an important word to take note of in Bible interpretation, therefore, which is basically a term that means in light of what I just said, in connection to what I just stated or what I just communicated and its importance, this is why I'm now going to say the things following. Now, as we went through chapter one together, it spoke greatly of the importance of maintaining spiritual health. Paul was expressing to Timothy the critical nature of making sure that he stayed the course spiritually and that he did not deviate himself, nor did he allow anyone else to pull the church in a wrong direction. He stressed the need, remember he said, to hold the line, to hold fast to hold the line spiritually like a good soldier in the midst of a spiritual batter. And he emphasized particularly that in regards to holding the line as it pertained to the word of God, not getting off track, not moving away from the biblical gospel message in wanting to present interesting talks or things that would stimulate people or motivational speeches, but that he would hold to the biblical gospel message that saves men's souls and that he would teach people sound doctrine, which is a statement, basically the Greek, when you look at it, it means healthy teaching, which indicates there apparently is teaching that's not healthy. Just like there can be healthy food and unhealthy food, right? For sake of natural digestion. And, and it's the same is true spiritually. Timothy, make sure that God's children are getting healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, and he cautioned both of unhealthy people and false teachers that might seek to pull people in wrong directions, as well as the out-and-out satanic influence trying to pollute the church. Now, it's in connection to that exhortation of spiritual health that in light of that important matter, Paul then says, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, in other words, in light of that thing, I exhort, first of all, verse 1, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So notice, under the direction of the Spirit of God, Paul identifies, we might say here, a, a primary priority that really matters to God. That's what we're talking about here. What matters to God? He says this is a primary priority, something that really matters to God, 
that his church be occupied doing, and we might say that is, according to verse 1, seeking God. That it matters greatly to God that we spend time, it sounds oversimplistic, but it's important, that his church be occupied seeking him. First and foremost, that our primary function, our greatest concern would be that we collectively come together to seek God. Paul says there in verse 1, look at it, he says, I exhort, which is a, a statement that means I strongly urge for something to be done. This is important, and so he's urging, he's urging for obedience, or we might say compliance to do something that ought to be done, and the Holy Spirit strongly urges Christians through Paul the Apostle here to engage in seeking God. He's saying, I'm urging you, seek God. I'm exhorting you, I'm urging you to please comply for your spiritual health and for the sake of all the rest of the world that's unhealthy, that needs the spiritual health of Christians going out into the world to be a good influence. As a wise spiritual leader here, Paul says, I'm urging you, take serious the practice of seeking God. Take very serious the urgency, the criticalness, and responsibility as a church to spend time seeking God. Now, let me just say by way of application, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? To actually think that the Holy Spirit had to prompt Paul to exhort the church to seek God. I look at that and I almost scratch my head to a degree. Is, is the Holy Spirit really exhorting the church to seek God? But I wonder if perhaps God who knows all things... He understood how human history would unfold and how things would go with the church, that at the church overall at times, God knew would struggle with becoming preoccupied in different things rather than seeking God. And that if in some ways the church would, in a sense, make its foremost practices way more social rather than spiritual. And that the church would, to some degree, become preoccupied with functioning like the Elks Club or like a recreation center in the community. And something that's got great programs and good things and wholesome activities, but that to the end of the day, it's much more social than it is about getting people to seek God and helping people to pray and to seek the Lord and to worship and recognizing that is the thing God says, look... I don't care if you occupy yourself from time to time with this or that, but God's saying, but the primary thing, the main reason for the existence of the church for the family of God is that we would be seeking him. He says, I urge you, look what he says, first of all. When he says there, first of all, when you look at that term, it's in the original, it's not first in the sense of sequence or order. He's not saying that every time you gather, the first thing you have to do in sequence is seek God first or pray first. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that term first of all there literally means first in priority. In other words, he's saying, this is the thing of first importance, the highest priority above all else, that we would make this the most important thing. Paul's saying, what I'm about to identify here in this verse, he says, is the thing that should be the highest priority among God's people. It should be the most important thing that the church concerns itself with in its function and its operations. I'm urging you as Christians, Paul says, as a local church, in your activities, 
in your functions, in the things you occupy yourself doing, that your top priority, your most important practice would be emphasize this above everything else, that you spend time seeking God, that you help people to seek God, that you get people engaging in seeking God. He's commanding the local church to really gather together for that express purpose that we're asking God for help. We're seeking God to get to know him better. We're looking to the Lord in reliance and pleading for his intervention. We're coming together and offering God praise and thanksgiving that he's rightly deserving of. Now, as this idea here emerges of a top priority in the church gathering is to seek God, let me ask this question in connection. Where did Paul get that idea? Where did he get this novel, wonderful idea that the primary purpose of the church is to spend time seeking God? Well, it came because he loved Jesus and he stole the idea from Jesus. If you remember, Jesus himself, who loved his father in heaven, wanted to do what mattered to the father in heaven. You remember in Matthew chapter 21, it tells us this, that Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, based upon the word of God, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. In other words, when Jesus went into the temple of God, in reverence for God the Father and wanting what mattered most to his heavenly Father, what mattered most to God, Jesus was greatly, not only disheartened, but extremely displeased when he took notice of the fact that the temple of God in that day had become much like a worldly business operation. And that the way that they functioned and how they did things and the way that they operated, it much more looked like corporate America than it did a collection of humble children of God who were seeking God and depending upon God and were operating according to what's spiritual and not according to what's commercial or practical and kind of just functioning more like a business buying and selling and people were looking ways to make money and enrich themselves and using in a sense a, a spiritual covering to basically just operate a business under religious guise in some senses and jesus was very strongly opposed to this you can tell he goes in on more than one occasion and clears the temple in the gospels one time creating a whip and chasing people out and look jesus must have been i have to say one bad hombre because you, you, people paint these pictures of Jesus, right? Yesterday we did the basic thing for, for the men. And, and, and I hate this idea when people have this idea that Jesus was effeminate and weak and that men are supposed to be effeminate and weak. You know, Jesus, as one man, went into this highly established temple situation and literally started flipping over tables and chasing people out of the temple with great sternness and masculinity. And nobody said, yo, bro, what are you doing? They just all ran for the hills because he was righteously indignant. And there was, there was a, a, a spiritual backbone, if you would, that this is wrong. What is this? This is highly unacceptable. This is offensive to God. It is not right to treat people like this. And, and God's sheep are blood-bought. And this is disgusting. And he drove them out and then declared, you've made this place a den of thieves. What have you made the house of God? 
And Jesus said, this is to be a house of prayer. In other words, he was saying the house of God was intended to be a place where people seek God. That's what it was supposed to be about. All the other stuff is miscellaneous, and we understand to some degree that there may be a level of organization and that the church has to function and you know money comes in. And, but Jesus said, look, the focus should be getting people to seek God and that that would be the primary thing, and he emphasized that. And this is why the Holy Spirit here prompts Paul to say this. I urge you that of first importance above all else, he says, that people would be seeking God. And he uses here some various terms you can tell in verse one, to describe communication as we seek God. He uses four different terms specifically. He says, first of all, that we would be making supplications. That word supplication speaks of making requests of God. That is asking God for things, which means that we understand that it is essential as well as God's ideal that we do live dependently upon him and that we're not striving to do things in the flesh we're not trying to make things work according to human efforts, whether it's in how the church operates, whether it's in how we take care of things in our own personal lives as Christians. Instead, we learn that we live dependently upon God for his power and for his help, and that rather than aspiring to this or striving for that, we ask for this, and we seek God for that. And we recognize we have to look to God and we're supposed to ask of God to do what he needs to do in different situations for provision and assistance that we rely as children on our heavenly father. And you read the gospels and very clearly you see Jesus emphasizing this again and again about reliance upon the father. Jesus says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be open. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds whoever knocks the door will be open he said which of you he says having children if they ask for bread is going to give them a stone and he says how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask and again it would be in a sense blasphemous to think for us to just think we can brazenly run into god's presence but we're actually being invited jesus is saying ask the father wants you to ask he would much rather you Seek him, then strive to make it happen yourself. Because then he gets all the glory, right? How did that happen? Did you strive to do something? No, I honestly didn't. I just stopped and I asked God and I sought God and God did it. But that develops that dependency and that relationship and it keeps us connected to God in the way that he wants us to be with supplications. We should be seeking and asking God for what we need collectively coming together, praying, asking for God to work as his people. He then uses the term there in verse two, prayers. And that Greek term just speaks of, of a general or a broad sense of communication. So this kind of refers more to just spending time with God, just being in his presence. It's just a broad term to describe communicating with God. It speaks to talking to God relationally. The idea there would be just expressing ourselves to God. And look, we all need an outlet, right? Some of us use outlets and some of us in social media probably not too wisely. But what is that? Think about that. I don't do social media and you're free to do it if you want to, but it's an outlet, right? Isn't that what it is? It's a way for people to express themselves. 
It's a way for people to communicate what they think or how they feel or what's going on. Maybe to, if my understanding is correct, you know, respond back to, this is what you say. Well, this is how I feel about that. And, and it's an outlet to express ourselves. And we talk to one another, right? Nothing wrong with that. We share our burdens. We express what's going on in our lives. But prayer speaks of, in a sense, expressing ourselves to God. The idea is tell God how you feel. Express yourself to God. Pour out your heart to God. Sometimes there's way more value in us pouring out our hearts to God and expressing ourselves to God, what's on our heart and mind, and just in a, in a therapeutic way, just getting it off our chest, just talking to God and pouring out our hearts to God than it is perhaps talking to another person who maybe can't even do what God could do. Or maybe they're not going to hear it and interpret it in the same way as properly, and God could much easier just let you express yourself. Or maybe it would be much better and more beneficial instead of expressing ourselves in some you know, format and social communication that to just, what if we prayed instead of, what is it, posted, right? What if you prayed instead of posted? Wonder if better things might happen once in a while. And so God here says, look, this is the first importance. Sometimes even just prayer with God is just coming and just sitting quietly. You know, on the occasions time to time and we have prayer meetings together here as God's family and spend time seeking the Lord. Sometimes those quiet moments, whether collectively with a group of people or even when we pray on our own, sometimes it's realizing prayer is a dialogue and just sitting quietly and just letting God express back to us or put an impression on our heart and mind, maybe what he wants us to hear as we're spending time just generally communicating with him. The third word he uses here regarding seeking God in verse one is the term intercessions. And that term speaks of standing together with another in their situation to assist them. This is the idea of intercession, seeking God on behalf of the needs of others, whether it's to help them bear their burden, to stand in the gap with them in the midst of some help that they need or problem they're enduring, bringing someone and their situation before God and standing together with them in the spirit through prayer and asking God to intervene in their situation, to help them or to work in their matter, pleading with God to work in the lives of other people in different ways as we see it's needed and recognizing from time to time, look, there's something that at times I can't do for other human beings, right? I, 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 as much as I can try and be compassionate and encouraging and, and, and I can't heal someone's broken heart. I can't miraculously take pain out of someone's body. I can't help a person to navigate through something difficult, but what I can do in intercession is we can come together and agree together in prayer and say, Lord, please, you can do those things. Lord, we're asking, we're standing in the gap for them. Lord, please intervene in their situation. Set them free from that. Or Lord, alleviate the burden some or give them grace or heal them or help them, Lord. And, and we stand in the gap and ask God to do something for others in a humble sense of desperation that we realize that we cannot do, but thankfully God has the power to do. You know, I think one of the greatest examples of this in the book of Acts in the early church is Acts chapter 12. We're told there that Peter is arrested by an evil politician because of the ministry and gospel work that he was doing. So he's arrested and incarcerated for his ministry. And it says in Acts chapter 12 that the whole church came together and prayed for him. So the idea is the church had a problem. And the way they solved it is 
They had a prayer meeting. Imagine that. Hey, this person's in deep trouble. There's a desperate situation. What should we do? They all came together, and they had a church prayer meeting. And it doesn't say the leaders came. It says the church came. The church came together, and they started praying and asking for God to work in that situation and to set Peter free. And you read Acts chapter 12, what happens? A miraculous thing transpires, and miraculously, God sets Peter free from prison. And I look at that story, and I think to myself, there are many reasons that people can become imprisoned, incarcerated. Certainly like Peter's situation for doing the right thing and literally being thrown into prison as a punishment, but there are lots of other reasons that people become slaves and imprisoned and incarcerated as well, and they need to be set free. And what a wonderful thing to understand the power of intercessory prayer ministry can open doors. It can set people free. It can be the thing that causes God to intervene miraculously when the church learns the value of intercession. You know, I can't help but to wonder, perhaps, if there's minimal power at times in the church, because maybe there's minimal prayer at times in the church. I read Ezekiel chapter 22, and God's crying out and beckoning, and he says that he is seeking but struggling to find people who will stand in the gap to intercede. Again, the power of intercession as we seek God. And then finally, he mentions in verse 1, a fourth word, describing there just giving of thanks being made as well, which just speaks of that we'd also spend time offering gratitude to God and appreciation. That when we come together, yes, do we ask things? Certainly. Do we bring our needs before God? Absolutely. Do we just communicate with God and, and express our hearts? Yes. Do we intercede and ask God to work in situations and help people? Absolutely. But another component of seeking God is just offering God praise. And that can happen through verbal articulation or musical articulation as we just express thanksgiving to God and our appreciation to him for who he is and for all that he's done and what he has the power to do. And that even at times if we're going through something where maybe circumstantially it is hard or we wish the circumstances were different, that we can still pray or praise and give thanks to God and say, God, I wish this was different or this is a really hard time, but I thank you that at least you're with me. I thank you that I'm not going through this alone. Thank you, God, that you have a good hope and a future set in front of me because that's what your word promises. And I thank you, Lord, that though this looks horrible, that I can trust that though I can't fix it, that in time, Lord, you have the power to do things that I can. And we can begin to just thank God for who he is and what he has the ability to do and the blessings that we can still appreciate. Lord, this isn't right and this stinks, but, but Lord, I thank you for this. And Lord, I'm grateful for that. And, and, and at least, Lord, I still have this situation and just expressing gratitude for what we can as well as I think an area we often overlook, and yet the New Testament speaks of it quite a bit, thanking God for others and for what he's done in the lives of other people. You know, Lord, I, Lord thank you for what you've done in his life. Thank you for this. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing in their life. You know, one of the wonderful things to be a part of ministry on any level, is it not, is to be able to have the privilege to watch God work in people's lives. 
and to know somebody where they were six months ago or a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago and to go, oh my goodness, Lord, Lord, thank you so much. All that you've done in his life, all you've done in their life, all you've done in my kids' lives, look what they've become. And to just thank God for those things. And here he says that we should be making requests and communicating and interceding and thanking God. Notice he says there, verse one, that's to be made for all men. In other words, we're instructed as a church to keep highly prioritizing seeking God, but not just in an exclusive way. Do do I routinely pray for my immediate family and those I'm closely connected to? Absolutely. But God says, keep it broad when you're praying for all men. Everybody needs prayer, God says. Well, there's nothing else to pray about. Oh, God says all men. That's plenty enough to keep us busy. All men, believers and unbelievers, friends and enemies, situations that we're dealing with and maybe just situations from time to time we hear about. Praying for our police departments, you know, praying for, as he's going to talk about, governmental leaders, praying for situations that we become aware of. There is plenty of things to be interceding for and asking God to work in and giving God thanks for. And he says that broadness of prayer is very important. And he adds a particular subculture that truly needs prayer and intercession. Look at verse 2. He says that this prayer would be made seeking God for kings and for all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So he says, here's one area that God specifically says matters to him, and he identifies one here, praying, interceding for kings and those in roles of authority. That is high rulers over nations. That's what kings are, rulers over nations or empires, political leaders, those with authority, those who hold governing power, an authorization to operate in ways of leadership in societies. Look, why is this so crucial? Because these people have huge responsibility, huge responsibility. And then on top of that, they have incredible influence in the society that they're exercising authority or governmental or political uh, power over. And in Paul's day, understand, as Paul's saying these things, Paul's writing this when the wicked political rulers of the Roman Empire were the ones who were governing at that time. Government was not good in Paul's day. You're talking about the days of the Caesars and the Herods and the iron fist of the Roman Empire who ruled in a very harsh way. These were incredibly wicked rulers, immoral, corrupt, and they governed in a very oppressive way. They domineered the people of the society. They, they intervened in ways where they treated Christians very badly. Study history. They sought to make existence as Christians and as the church not just difficult, but miserable. And something that you were terrified at times to even be faithful to Christ. They brought harsh persecution against the church and mistreated Christians. Yet in balance, what does Romans 13 teach us that all civil authority that exists, Romans 13 says, exists by God's allowance, by God's purposes. No authority exists other than that. The Bible actually says that was appointed by God. So the idea is, though we vote, though we have different forms of government, the Bible says that ultimately, Daniel 2 says, God sets up kings, he tears down kings. God ultimately allows that role of authority to be given. God's the one who ultimately allows them to be in that role. First Peter 2 says, fear God, 
submit to the emperor, submit yourselves to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. And God says the reason is in order to silence accusations that would come against the church. And so God says, for conscience sake, I want you to be peaceable. I want you to function in this way where you honor authority. You may not agree with it. Certainly, God understands that. God doesn't even agree with a lot of human authority. <laughs> That's evident throughout the word of God. So the question we then struggle with, right, is we go, well, wait a minute. What about the evil things that they do? And how do we resist their, their evil activity and their sick agendas and what they're doing? It, it's wicked, and it's sometimes even unlawful. So how do we stop that spread of wickedness? And what if they try and hold us back from God's will and God's purpose? Well, wait a minute. I think the Bible has an answer to that. What does God say right here in the word of God? Pray. That's a novel idea. God says, I do have an answer for that. I know they're wicked. I know they give you a hard time. I know they're doing things that are destructive to society. And God says, I am asking you to do something. Here is your weapon I've given to you. Here's what I ask of you. Simply, I ask that my church first and foremost pray. Why? Because despite who's on any human throne, that never changes who's on the ultimate throne, which is the king of kings, who is superintending over everything. Nobody's going to vote him out. Nobody's going to come up with a scandal to kick him out of his office. He's there forever. And he's still superintending, even as he allows at times evil human rulers. And God says, seek me for what you need. Don't rely on human rulers to do what you need or what you want. God says, come to me. And he's even saying, look, intercede for these rulers. They have huge responsibility. He's ask of me that, that, that their thinking and decisions and their plans would come into alignment. And, and, and God wants us to plead with him on behalf of them, on behalf of their souls to get saved that God would put wise counselors instead of foolish people around them to make righteous decisions, and that perhaps if they are rebellious as human beings and they are evil in their rulership, that God, if need be, would do what he's able to do, which is to humble and dethrone them, as he has done at times through human history, right? We read the Old Testament scriptures. Saul started erring. What did God do? Dethroned him. Nebuchadnezzar started erring. God humbled and dethroned him. Herod's God dethroned him. And God is more than able, the Old Testament kings at times, to humble rulers who are rebellious because he ultimately has the highest rulership. And our job is not to do things humanly, but to seek God's heavenly help and to realize that we are to look to him. And it has a specific purpose because he says right there in verse two, we're to pray for kings and those in authority that we might lead, he says, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. In other words, so that we as the Lord's representatives and as his church would recognize part of the reason God wants us to pray for civil leaders and, and those who have authority in the society is because there's a value to that. He says, so that, that's a purpose word, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. That word quiet speaks of an inward calm and tranquility. It speaks of what we call peace of mind. The idea is that we as God's people and the church would not be agitated and disturbed in spirit, 
but through praying and asking for God's will and God to work, it will bring us a sense of inner calmness when out there it's utter chaos and that it will help us keep our minds and that it will help us have an inward calm because we trust, you know, it's getting pretty chaotic out there, but you know what? I have a quietness in my soul because I'm praying and, and I know the one who's ultimately on the throne. And I know somehow still he can work even through the wrongdoings of man and that we're not, listen, that we're as Christians, not the people running around freaking out like everybody else in the world is. And there's one thing we know, you can sell fear. You can sell chaos. People feed on it and they love it. And sometimes as God's people, we can get caught right into that same thing. And instead of being reliant upon God, we want to protest that and do this and say this and say that and do all this kind of stuff. And we're just as agitated as everybody else. We're just as freaked out as that. You almost would think that we don't have the Bible and know that in the end it's working out okay because Jesus is coming back. And we're wondering sometimes, why are we as freaked out as everybody else? Don't we have a degree of trust that unsaved people don't have? To, and part of that is that maybe because we neglect to seek God. And we neglect to spend time with God and take serious prayer. And then that reflects that instability where God, look, he says, I want you to pray so that you can lead a quiet life. So that you can have an inner calm as God's people and, and, and help when everyone else is overwhelmed that you can bring a sense of calmness by your disposition being calm. And he says not only that we'd have a quiet heart, but notice he says that we can also lead, he says, verse two there, a peaceable life. And notice peaceable, which means not having inward peace, that we would behave in a peaceable way <laughs> with everybody around us in the world and even civil leaders when they're doing wrong things, though we may disagree with them, we're not getting so angry and agitated because we're neglecting to pray and look to God to help us and to work in situations that we don't become so angry and agitated, agitated that instead of becoming peaceful, we're just hating everyone. And we're despising every politician and spewing venom at the job site and vengeful in our attitudes. And look, we can speak the truth in opposition to error, and we should never stop doing that. We're to be salt and light. We are to speak the truth. Other people are bold about truth. We must be truthful in the same way, and we should not be intimidated to do that. But we have to be careful that we keep our hearts peaceful and that we remain balanced and regulated so we don't get over-agitated and we don't become really, I think, to a degree excessive in our political pursuits rather than in seeking God and realizing we're citizens of heaven first. Every society is done. Not just America, every society. It's not going to make it. The Bible says we should be good citizens, but not to the extreme that we forsake our citizenship in heaven in a way. We're to honor that king first and foremost. What we want to do is pray that we can lead a peaceable and quiet life as Christians. The idea is we want to pray for government and political leaders in such a way where God, please, here's what we're asking God, just help them to do what they are supposed to do, the things they're supposed to do, not the things they're not. Help them to do the things they're supposed to do well and that we can just be left in peace and quiet as Christians and they just leave us alone. And that we can just live our lives according to the word of God and we can do our job as the church 
which is to reach people's souls, to minister to people, to proclaim the gospel, to see people get saved, and that they would leave us alone in peace and quiet, and that we can do what God's called us to do as the church. And he says that here, that we could lead quiet and peaceable lives, look what he says, in all godliness and in reverence. In other words, that we can live godly lives that honor God, we can worship freely, we can pray regularly, and that there's not this resistance, that we can do ministry without hindrance, we can represent God well, and that we can live godly because we're praying and asking God, please, work in a way. We want to keep living godly. Don't let them stop us. We want to live righteous, God. We want to raise our kids in righteous and moral and godly ways. So please, Lord, we're asking, help us. We want people to know God and to be able to live for God and to come to experience God because we're calm and peaceable and we can live godly, reverent lives in a way that we represent God well and they kind of just leave us alone and, and let us do our thing. Now, I'm going to call an audible here because I'm looking at my stopwatch. Uh, and, and I want to just share something with you before we, we wrap up our time together. And, and we'll pick up the remaining verses next week. In fact, what we'll do, we'll, we'll do those verses and we'll share communion together. They're very fitting for that, the remainder of the verses. But I just want to read to you an article that came out this week to give you a strong application of why it is very good even to be observing verse 1 and 2 there. Of course, one of the articles you may have seen this week is a New York judge tried to legalize polygamy. So very close to home. And we're, we're moving in directions now where why pray for civil? Well, there's a good idea right there. Trying to legalize polygamy. But this article, and particularly as a, as a father of three daughters, again, just goes to show you where we're going, the insanity, sadly, the confusion in the minds of people. And listen, in the minds of people who have power and who have authority. Th this article right here, entire girls' volleyball team kicked out of their locker room except for their trans teammates. A high school announced last week that a girls' volleyball team was barred from their own locker room until further notice. The whole volleyball team, except apparently for the one biological male who now plays on the girls' team. The closure was not due to a health hazard, nor routine maintenance, nor for any legitimate reason. The school kicked all the girls out of the girls' locker room for asking their male teammate to leave while they changed. We do not make this decision lightly, but we believe it is the right decision at this time, say the co-principals and athletic director in an email to the parents. We think this is the right decision. When parents complained, school officials told them that state law requires schools to allow students to use the locker room according to their gender identity. However, as the mother of one athlete protested, the law also gives them room to protect all, and they did not. Rather, the school administrators are investigating the female volleyball players for harassment of their biologically male teammate. The school's decision to prefer the one student who identifies as a transgender over the rest of the team made no logistical sense, one athlete complained. They want all the girls who feel uncomfortable, which is 10 girls, to get changed in a single stall bathroom, which takes over 30 minutes, 
where the one person, the biological male, can still change separately in the locker room where it takes just one minute. After spilling out into the hallway, the controversy is swept through the entire school. It's a huge thing. Everyone's asking, so why is it you aren't allowed in your locker room, one volleyball player said? Whatever smoke screens the school administrators create, the answer to that question is simple. The girls asked a boy, please don't come in here, we're still changing. And he refused. In fact, he wasn't even entering to change himself. According to the mother mentioned above, the biological male was not changing and just sat in the back and watched the girls getting changed. That made these girls feel uncomfortable, and it made the girls feel violated and not protected. But the dispute only started after he made an inappropriate comment. Eventually, the controversy spilled out into the local news where one of the female athletes agreed to do an interview with her mother's permission. When the biological male, who identifies as female, was then shown that news clip, he allegedly exclaimed, I'm going to blanking kill someone, and I blanking hate her, referring to the interviewed student. She then reported to the principal, and the police were called. The next day, the school administrators informed parents that there were no credible threats affecting the district or the high school. That same day, the county sheriff said, the incident is currently under investigation. Evidently, school administrators consider a violent threat under active police investigation a less serious offense than girls demanding privacy in their own locker room. Look, folks, this is why it is essential to do what the Word of God says as the church and that we're not a social club that we are a spiritual family that takes seeking God seriously because this is what's going on in our society. That's one article just from this past week. It is so essential that we recognize the importance of what God is asking for us to do. And what does the Bible tell us to do? Not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. 